Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, this is Chris and Carly here talking with Sarah Sampson, and we're so excited to have uh, Sarah with us to talk uh, talk through something that's really, really important uh, for us, and that is uh, restorative practices. Uh, as we've started to talk more about um, race and equity on our podcast, especially as it comes to teenagers and, and, and educational circles, this topic of restorative practices uh, is something that we have studied for a while at Teen Life and have uh, really understood to be really important. But more and more school districts are, are starting to make this a part of how they uh, deal with social emotional issues on, on their campuses. So, Sarah, welcome. Uh, we're really glad you're here. If you would uh, just tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, what, what what brings you here. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So. Um, in my in my most previous incarnation, I was the social emotional learning facilitator for Keller ISD, uh, which is a school district that serves about thirty four thousand students. So I helped run a department of about six teachers who um, were in charge of implementing these social emotional learning programs within our schools. So social emotional learning, just for those who are listening, who think, what does that even, even, even mean? Um, it's defined by these, these five core competencies. So what the hope is, is that um, when, when kids who are going through a district that has social emotional learning programs, they're, they're moving out of the school district with self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decisions. Yeah, responsible decision-making. So our hope is that those are the things that they would be exiting along with their their academic work. Uh, And actually, it was through social-emotional learning that I found restorative practices. And um, that piece has become such a passion that I um, am actually now out on my own in consultancy, um, putting these restorative circles into businesses and schools and and using them also um, and work with just humans because I really believe in the power of, of a circle and believe that this, that this structure that restorative practice offers us really, uh, really, really helps. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And we will post um, links for how to contact and get in touch with Sarah on our website. But Sarah, why don't you go ahead and kind of dive into what are restorative practices and circles? You keep saying circle. So kind of give our audience a little glimpse of what that is. Sure. So um, I want to be clear also that a lot of this um, feels very personal. And I know that we're going to talk a little bit later um, about how these circles can be used for diversity, equity, inclusion work. But um, these practices, which feels important to name, do come from indigenous roots. And part of my my relationship to them has actually been part of my own journey of of getting in touch with my own personal social identity and um, relearning, remembering uh, what it's like to be a human who sits in a circle, because that's really in so many ways um, our our roots. Um, We look at the structures of our schoolrooms and also our business meetings, and we sit in lines, right? And as long as we're in a line, there's always going to be someone at the front and there's going to be someone at the end. Um, And this becomes a literal visual of the power structures that become um, the way that we relate to one another. And so a lot of the indigenous um, philosophy philosophy is, is, is about the circle um, or the wheel, um, where there's really no beginning, no end, no top, no bottom, no above, below, front or back. Um, there's, there's equity um, within, this, within this circle. Um, so really, I, I just want to name that that really is, is where, where these circles um, began 
It was, it was sitting around the fire. It was um, problem solving, community building, um, and repairing harm. Um, this specific work, restorative practices, really came to our Western um, brains through the criminal justice system. Um, they, it came as a way to repair harm. Um, and there are questions that are used within restorative circles specifically for that. And those include um, first asking what happened, what were you thinking when that happened, who's been affected by what's happened, how have they been affected? And then the most important question, which is, how are you going to make things right? What are you going to do to repair the harm? And that being really the driving force behind um, the, the solution rather than how um, you're going to be punished. And so in, in schools with restorative practices, what I ask teachers a lot is, do you want the child punished or do you want the behavior to change? Because they're two very different questions. And... Um, the circle is a place where that can can be explored. Um, so that's really where it, where it started entering into our field was through this this criminal justice system. Um, but the circles themselves and restorative practices themselves, um, the the foundation of them are agreements. So so working off of off of shared agreements, and the idea being that when we have shared agreements, we can create a really safe space to have really big bold, brave conversations. And even this idea, this visual, if you could just picture a circle, um, it's a ring around empty space, a ring around empty space. And a lot of my work lately, my, my new business is, is called Art of Space Holding. And this idea that this ring is a, is a structure around empty space. And how do we hold that ring? How do we safely together, right? Not just one person can hold a circle. Mm -hmm. How do we collectively hold this, this ring through shared agreements that we can then enter this field together, this empty space, which hopefully we can look at things beyond right or wrong and begin to find solutions and, and begin to, to find connections. Um, so just to give you guys the agreements, if, you, if you'd sure. like... Um, yeah, around what it, yeah, what it looks like to, to enter a restorative circle. Um, so these agreements are what are given right at the very beginning. And this could happen around a family dinner table. Um, this could happen in a schoolroom. This could happen in a business meeting. This can happen with kindergartners. This can happen with adults. And um, it works the same, and they're the same agreements every single time. And so the first, the first agreement um, is respect the talking piece. So as a facilitator, I might have the group repeat this back to me and even do this, this gesture of offering their, their hands out. So respect the talking piece. And the talking piece can be anything. It's just an object that creates focus. And the idea is that the person who holds the talking piece has the attention of the circle. And what that really creates right there is, is safety, um, especially because in these circles when we're, when we're offering an empty space to say difficult things, that there's not going to be response. There's not going to be dialogue. There's not going to be um, um, you giving me your opinion around something very tender I just offered out. I have this talking piece, and I know until it's released, I'm the one who continues to speak. Um, the talking piece itself, as it's passed, um, there's a very core skill that's practiced, which is eye contact. 
And it's so simple, you know, passing an object to someone and having them look at you while you're doing this. Um, it seems very simple, but you'd see just how challenged all ages are at that little moment of, I see you, we're having a moment here. There's an exchange happening. Um, so that part is very key. In Zoom rooms, as we were doing these circles, we do something called a virtual talking piece, um, which is where we just have someone, once, once they speak, say the name of the next person who's speaking and it's passed mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the first one's respect the talking piece. So create some focus in the space. Um, the next one is speak from the heart. Speak from the heart. And that can sound kind of cheesy, but really all that's being asked in, in speaking from the heart is that we speak honestly, uh, we speak um, kindly, we think about our intention with what we're saying, is what we're saying coming from our heads, our, us trying to impress or entertain, um, or, or are we really saying what's, what's true for us? And I talk about something in the circle called the vulnerability bubble. Um, and I invite everyone to be the person to pop it, um, meaning that as soon as someone offers something that's really true and really raw and really real, the vulnerability bubble pops. And then everyone after that person has permission to do the same. And it's amazing. Once you see it happen, the, the how the space changes. So I invite people to do that and also um, remind them along with you know, Brene Brown's vulnerability work that um, vulnerability doesn't mean you have to share all your deepest, darkest secrets. Yeah, uh, it, yeah right? Um, it just mm -hmm. means you have to say what's, what's real. Yeah, what's real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the next one is, is, is listen from the heart. And that's twofold. Listening from the heart means obviously that while someone has the talking piece, you're not talking um, out in the space. You're, you're, you're listening. You're, you're giving them your eyes, your ears, your body is faced and focused towards them, your whole body listening. But the second part of listening from the heart is the most important part, and it's the part that we can't see. Um, it's the part where while, while you're speaking and I'm listening, I'm watching my own mental choreography. I'm, I'm watching how I might pass judgment or how I might create a story around you um, while you're speaking and that that's not listening from the heart in the same way that uh, me thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner or uh, replaying a moment that happened earlier and, and traveling somewhere else in my mind is also not being with you. And so listening from the heart is this invitation to be there with, with, with non-judgment towards the speaker and deep, deep, deep curiosity. How can I stay in the state of curiosity while someone is speaking? So that's, mm -hmm. that's listen from the heart. So we have folks agree to that. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is uh, what happens in the circle stays in the circle. So that's our tree of trust that we create right there. And that confidentiality piece is, is, is made really clear, especially in schools. Um, and the thing about what happens in the circle stays in the circle does not mean that if you have some epiphany that occurs while you're here that you can't go share that with people. That's your story. You know, shout it out on the podcast, write it down in your book, tell your mom, go, 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 tell your story. That's what we're here to do. We're here to tell our story. But don't tell the story of the person next to you. It's not your story. It's not your story to tell. Um, we also make very clear with FERPA that um, if, if a student shares something within a school district circle um, that might harm themselves or another, that that would be the only thing that we might take out of this circle. 
though, what we found is that when we open up the space that that does happen, um, and we don't shy away from that, you know, you open up cans of worms cause there's worms in there. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's, it's when that happens, it happens, but just know, you know, that we've, we've, we've said that that would come out of the circle should it need mm-hmm. to. So, um, so there's two more and they're very simple. Um, the next one is trust. You'll know what to say, trust. You'll know what to say. And this is where I see a lot of magic occur in the circle because the in- invitation is not to rehearse what it is you're going to say. So there's, there's a prompt that's given in the circle. There's maybe 20 people, 10 people in the circle and our tendency while others are speaking is to be, Oh goodness, what am I going to say? Mm-hmm. I'm, I got to say something interesting. I got to say something funny. I got to say something that's going to like really be meaningful. I got to say the right thing. And so the invitation here is, hey, when that talking piece hits your hand, just trust you'll know what to say. Let it be messy. Let it be really messy. Let it be full of ums and, and um, incomplete thoughts. Um, but let it, let it be messy and let it be real. So that's trust you'll know what to say. And the last one, the very last one is very important um, for especially little ones in these circles, teenagers as well, which is say just enough. (laughs) Say just Mm -hmm. enough. Uh, What we're working for here is equity of voice. So everyone is speaking about the same in the circle. And the way that we do that, and I'll, I'll offer some ideas for this later, but is through sentence stems, sentence stems. So if you ask an open-ended question to a circle, like, what makes you most happy? There are going to be folks who don't even know where to begin answering that question. And there are going to be folks who could just go on and on and on and on and on about that question. So if you can offer a STEM, like, I am most happy when. Complete that sentence. That's all I need you to do in this circle is to laser your response and complete this sentence. It can keep the circle moving and you can actually go uh, much, much more deeper and have a lot more equity um, in what is spoken. So those are the agreements and, and that's the ring around the space. That's, those are the things that hold us together and they're not a to-do list, right? It's not a checklist. It's, it's a, it's a to-be list. This is how we're agreeing to to, to be together. And as a facilitator of someone who, who really desires to hold a safe space, those become my ally. And I don't have to, uh, you know, step over people or interrupt people um, with anything other than an agreement, right? We agreed to this. So um, I'm going back to this agreement rather than um, um, uh, making you feel wrong in some way, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know our, our teen life facilitators will um, resonate with a lot with what you just said. Um, I was just thinking about that as we we're going through this, a lot of stuff we, uh, we really hammer home with our facilitators. So um, I want to talk a little bit about um, kind of unpack for me because um, th- this could obviously uh, play out in lots of different scenarios, but let's talk about how these circles would play out in a, in a school and then maybe around the dinner table. Uh, you kind of talked about that. I mean, like, so we have, you know, just for the, for the interest of time, you know, what what practically does this does a circle look like uh, on a on a school campus and then at home? Sure. So we'll start with school, um, and that's really where a lot of my experiences have happened. Though I'm I'm gradually taking the circles to the dinner table, so it's mm-hmm. an evolution. Um, but starting in the schools, the way that we suggest that folks start is that. 
adults become um, um, first participants in the circle. So a staff is first trained um, and, and they're the participants. They actually get the experience of being in a circle before they're asked to facilitate a circle. So that might happen in a staff meeting and it, they're trained that way. From there, when they go into the classrooms and they're holding these circles with their students, the format is the safety net. They have the agreements. They have the sentence stems. The sentence stems can go anywhere, right? You can go anywhere from community building to academic conversations to then using those circles when, an, when a disagreement happens in the classroom, you bring it to the circle. Um, but when we start these circles, what we, we call them green circles, so the place to start. Um, and the green circles are the community building circles. So those are, are where we're asking at the beginning of the year, if possible, um, teens, children to sit in circles and get to know each other in this way. Um, this really asks them to get out behind the desk as well. Um, the desk itself, right, it's like you can imagine it like really blocks the heart, you know, it's just right there. So sitting in that circle, there's just an embodiment of that as well, of what it means to sit in a circle together and have these conversations that have nothing to do with academics, um, knowing that the research has shown with social emotional learning that when we take time to build relationships, uh, later on, things like academic work and discipline is actually um, much, much easier to work with. Uh, with a relational foundation, right? We all know this mm -hmm. in this work. Um, so we would start with a community building circle and it would be just that. And that's where they're forming relationships, where they're, where they're getting to know each other. Um, once that's been established, the circles can then move into academics. We can start having conversations about what we're learning. Then from there, um, if something were to happen, say in the global sphere, right? Or something within the uh, microsphere of the classroom, and we need to have a, a difficult conversation, we can have it within the, the realm of this circle. But what I really encourage teachers and circle facilitators of all kind is, is never to start there. Those are what we call yellow or, or red circles even, um, where, we're, where we're bringing a, a really challenging conversation into this space. Um, because we want to make sure that space is a safe place first, um, before we, we start to bring difficulty into it. Uh, with the specific program that I worked on this, this last year um, within high schools in Keller ISD is I created something called um, creating a culture of belonging circles or circling for belonging. Um, and this is where we really dove into these conversations around race and culture and equity. Um, and the way that these circles were designed were that they were progressive, um, meaning that we started in the shallow end, we went to the deep end, and we brought it back up to the shallow end um, within every circle, and then with also the, the larger architecture of, of how we wanted to facilitate these conversations. Um, so specifically, we were in history classes, um, right along the timeline as students were studying um, the civil rights movement. And so they began having conversations to begin with around belonging. So we call this appreciative inquiry. So starting first with the positive. Um, if, if I want to explore this idea of exclusion, let me first explore what it feels like to be included. Um, and so we have them explore sentence stems like, I feel I belong when. Where is a place I feel like I belong? Um, we have them explore aspects of their social identity. We give them something called a social identity wheel that has things like race, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, gender. Um, and this wholly inclusive wheel, they really think about these aspects of themselves. Think about what parts they're really proud of, 
what parts people have made negative assumptions um, about. Um, and what can be powerful in that circle, too, is talking about privilege. And what's really interesting is, is allowing children to um, talk about their lived experiences and um, also those who might not have a place where they can say, uh, a negative assumption has been made about me based on my um, there are going to be those students who don't have an answer to that question, and that's okay. It's just that moment of recognizing, wow, I'm in a circle of people who have social identities that are challenging. Life has been challenging for them. I don't have those challenges. That's privilege. Mm-hmm. That moment is really powerful to witness, and I've done these circles with teens, and I've done them with adults, these belonging circles, and our teens can go there and they want to go there. Um, I had teens at the end of these, these, this series um, tell me, you know, this was the most meaningful thing I've ever done in high school. This is what I want to be doing. I want to be having these conversations. And so the willingness and the, um, the emotional intelligence and the bonds that are formed are powerful. Um, as far as popping the vulnerability bubble, asking things like um, a time I felt left out was... Um, I'm most conscious of my race when um, I cope with the difficulties of race um, that race creates for me and others by. Um, uh, yeah, I experience privilege by. I, I make others feel more welcome by. Um, and really diving into these conversations um, within this, this safe, safe structure. So it's, it's worked really well. We used um, a pre and post survey with these circles, and we would ask things like, um, from a scale of one to five, how safe do you feel at school? Um, from a scale of one to five, uh, how, does, is, how inclusive is your school? And what we saw change on over six weeks in these circles were these questions such as, I feel comfortable talking about race. I feel comfortable when others talk about race. I feel comfortable speaking mm-hmm. up. When I see examples of, of racial inequity, we would see this change over time that, in fact, like the, the, the comfort level was rising. And that's really all we're asking for here. We're not asking to solve the world's problems, solve all the world's inequities in, in one circle in one high school classroom. But what we can do is empower children, students, teens to have these conversations, to give them the language and the practice to do so. So that's really the school realm. Mm-hmm. I love that. And just that idea of the more you practice it and the more you engage with others in relationship, the more comfortable you're going to be with that. And I think that goes for adults too, of, um, I'm sure you're about to get into what you do at home, but as a parent, it might be really uncomfortable for me to start this conversation, but the more you do it at home, the more you do it with your family, the more comfortable you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a skill. And I think that we have to remember that. Uh, we go to school to learn, right? And the first time you try to, I, I remember learning moles in chemistry, this like very complicated equation. And it's uncomfortable and it's okay because you've never done it before. And I think in the social sphere, um, we feel bad about ourselves when we try to do something and we, we're having difficulty. It's challenging. We're uncomfortable. Um, but just like anything that we're trying for the first time, 
it's natural to feel uncomfortable. It's natural to not know what to say next. Um, and so within that, that safety of the circle where we say it's okay to say the messy thing, um, it's okay not to say the perfect polished thing. We're all practicing here. Um, and there's no one to, to stop you and say, hey, I don't like what you said. I disagree with you. No, no, no. The, 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 really the responsibility, which we talk about of, of the circle, is to just witness you to just watch you, to just listen to you. That's their job. They're not there to fix it or solve it or judge it or criticize it. They're there to hold you in, in, in your learning, really, because that's what we're doing here. And I know adults, really, it's harder for them to give themselves their, that permission, I think, right? Our teens are like, yeah, we're learning. We're in a classroom. It's what we do. Let's learn. And as adults, um, we're having to go to some really big learning right now really big learning and giving ourselves permission to, to be on that, that messy field of learning, that uncomfortable field of learning, um, knowing that comfort might not be even our goal, uh, perhaps, um, yet, <laughs> yet while we're learning. Mm-hmm. So, right, so Sarah, oh, sorry, Chris, um, can you dive into a little bit of, and you've talked about sentence stems already, but how could parents use some of those at the dinner table and at their home to have some of these really difficult conversations? Sure. So um, when I talk about with doing these things with families, um, I think that it can definitely be simplified as part of as far as agreements go. Um, so I would simplify them for a family, right? That that to have a talking piece. I think that's probably the most like essential safety safety piece um, of this situation, um, and and to talk about what it means to speak and listen from the heart, and that also we can create safety within our family, right? That we can mm-hmm. that we can hold each other's stories. Um, so I think that those those agreements, uh, whether you're in a classroom or around the dinner table, become essential. Um, and what is it like? I, I think back to my own family experiences and how much I would have loved to just hold a talking piece and have my parents hear me for a moment, right? Just, just hear me, right? right? Just hear me. And um, I think that that can be a really powerful, empowering place to, to put our teens in, to have, to have that opportunity to, to, to just speak and, and, and be heard. Um, now, what I encourage families to do as well is to build your own agreements um, and to create them together to co-create agreements for these conversations because your dynamic is your dynamic. And there might be specific things that you might want to agree to. One of them might be, we agree to stay at the dinner table. No matter how difficult this conversation gets, we're going to open up this conversation and we're going to close this conversation. It will end. It's not going to go on forever, but can we agree? <laughs> can we agree like, uh, to, to stay with this conversation, to not get up and leave um, and to stay with one another in it? Um, also, a little bit more of a freeform circle can be used where you put the talking piece in the center and you request the talking piece. So rather than it traveling around the circle, it can be something that family members take turns picking up and having the focus um, of the group. And what we're avoiding here, which I think teens may yeah, out, out in the globe can thank me for this, is, is no crosstalk. There's not dialogue necessarily happening here. Um, it's an opportunity to, to bring in um, a, a question, a, a sentence stem, and to have time to, to really explore and answer that um, without my mom hopping in and giving her opinion and trying to fix it or what have you. Um, 
Now, sentence stems with larger circles are really nice because they keep that circle moving. And I do think that they work well with smaller circles as well. But at the dinner table, uh, I want to be clear that you can ask open-ended questions, right? Open-ended questions are okay in groups of four or five. It's just not quite so easy to do in a larger group. So uh, I want to be clear that those are perfectly okay to use. Um, Conversations about race with with kiddos around the dinner table. Um, it can be interesting to explore the family social identity. Um, the wheel itself that we have our students look at, um, I mentioned a little bit earlier, but looking at what is our race? What is our ethnicity? What is our social identity? What is my gender? What does that mean for me? Um, other pieces on the wheel um, are things like first language, national origin, um, socioeconomic, like having these, 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 these conversations of just like, this is who we are as a family. What are we proud of? What are we really proud of about who we are? Yeah, and um, we start there, but then let's be brave enough to go into, you know, in my life, this is what I've, ex someone's made a negative assumption about me based on this. And what is the bonding there that can also occur if there is shared within a family unit, if there's shared negative assumptions? Um, and how do we meet? How do we hold each other in that, right? Now, also as a family, how do we explore our privilege? How do we explore our privilege? And um, for some of us, this is a bigger as, um, you know, white, uh, middle-class suburban families, having a conversation around the dinner table about privilege can be a really big, what were we given that we didn't really earn? And what does that mean for us? Um, what can we do with it? It then becomes the bigger question. What do we do with our privilege? Right? How can, how can we make others feel, um, feel, feel welcome? Um, so these are these, these conversations that I think can become really powerful, um, specifically around race, um, to have around the dinner table. I know that this, this conversation is something actually that some of our teens are more ready to have um, than our parent. their parents mm -hmm. are, are ready to have in so many ways. Um, there's a great book out there called The I Generation, which I um, highly recommend, um, about post-1994 um, children. And um, so those are our teens right now. And a lot of things that it talks about are some, some research from the American Psychological Association about how this generation can tend um, to be more stressed. And we all know that depression rates are quite high for this generation. The one thing that it does talk about is that this generation is the most acceptant of differences than any previous generation, most tolerant. And when I speak that, that piece of data to a room of teenagers, they say, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And they're proud of it. They say, I can sit next to someone who looks different, thinks different, loves different, acts different than I do and um, connect. And I don't think that my mother is so great at that. I don't think my grandfather is so good at that, but I'm good at that and I'm proud of it. Um, so I do think that in some ways they're more ready for these conversations. But what we can do as, as parents and as adults in their lives is opening up the space, right? Opening up the space to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. So the, the thing that really got me excited about these practices is it's under this umbrella of restorative justice, of, of, of we, are, we want to make things right. And as you talk about these circles, that's a big part of that is, is making 
wrongs, right? As we, as we absolutely talk to each other. And so, um, our listeners likely might hear this and be like, this was not my public school experience. <laughs> we didn't talk about these things. And I would say, you know, these are, this is pretty new in a lot of ways, just in practice, not necessarily the concepts. Um, but I would hope a parent or a helper listening to this would, would hear this and say that I, I want, I want stuff like that on my kid's campus. That's really important. These practices. What, what would you say to a parent or a helper um, how can they advocate for more of these kind of practices to be on their local campus? Um, because I feel like, the, I feel like, you know, this isn't, this is inspiring stuff. And if I was, if I was a parent with my kid going to a school, I would want to know this is, this is the kind of stuff being talked about on a campus. Sure. I really appreciate that question. So a lot of these programs are coming out underneath the umbrella of social emotional learning programs. So if you hear about social emotional learning through your district, and if you're not hearing about it, start asking about it. Uh, Many districts are taking this on internally. And I definitely recommend um, if you don't have a social emotional learning program in your district, becoming a squeaky wheel for it, because this is typically where they come out. Mm -hmm. Um, Some districts are putting in some restorative practices positions or or bringing in people to train their staff in sort of practices specifically. Um, As far as this idea of, of, of repairing harm through restorative practices in the criminal justice system, they call it, as you said, restorative justice, but you can also hear it referred to as restorative discipline. And that's, of course, where we're, where we're hoping to get to, um, where we're coming from a restorative approach rather than a a punitive approach um, with our children, because because the truth is children make mistakes and that's learning. And we want to use those, those opportunities, those really wonderful opportunities for learning rather than, rather than discipline. And um, one of the things that I really advocate for in classrooms is, um, is being able to, to add what's called a respect agreement in every single classroom. Hmm. So this is where instead of teachers creating a set of rules for students, which I know you're like, oh no, don't take away the rules. This is all we got. No, not at all, not at all. We're not doing that. Um, But instead of creating a top-down approach where a teacher begins the year and says, these are the rules. These are the rules for the year. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, they, like we said around the dinner table, we're co-creating a respect agreement. So we, we make a list of what it looks like student to student. What are ways that we respect each other? Uh, teacher mm-hmm. to student, right? What is my responsibility as a teacher? Like, what are, what are my agreements? Am I, am I, do you want me to show up prepared? Do you want me to be kind? <laughs> uh, what do you expect of me? And then student to teacher, And then the last piece of it is all to the environment. So then there becomes this quadrant, if you will, of these four pieces where instead of having a list of rules, we have a list of agreements that we created together in dialogue. Mm -hmm. And when an agreement is broken, um, we need to look at what was misunderstood. So we made an agreement here. You agreed to this. So uh, So I'm saying you broke my rule, you're in trouble. It's hmm, you must have not understood the agreement that you made. Do we need to revisit it? Do we need to? And then, of course, mm-hmm. this does mean that there aren't consequences. We, we definitely still want to look at, especially uh, paying attention to natural consequences. If something natural occurred, do we need to add another um, piece of, of punishment or do we need to slow down and make sure the child understands the natural consequence mm-hmm. that occurred based on their action? Um, but that it's all formed and based out of these co-created agreements um, that students feel that they have voice and choice in. 
and that it's a living document, that at any time these can be refined or updated. Um, so that's really what I see my vision would be for, for having that in every, in every classroom and the circle being a place to come to when those agreements are broken. So definitely that's a long way to say advocate for these programs um, on your, on your campuses, um, in your, in your local district. Um, the two key words here would be social emotional learning programs and restorative practices, restorative discipline uh, within, within those campuses and those districts. Well, this is awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. A lot of it really lines up with what teen life does. And so as I hear you talking, just like giving teenagers the safe environment, the freedom to speak and to be heard um, is so important. And I feel, unfortunately, a lot of times teenagers don't get the opportunity to do that, to really be heard without someone jumping in. Um, And so it's been really encouraging to hear what the work that you've done and the work that some of our districts are doing to give teenagers the opportunity to do that. Chris, do you have anything to add? (laughs) No, I I had the doorbell ring and this is COVID podcasting. So (laughs) (laughs) sorry about that. Um, Sarah, thanks. Thank you so much for your time. This has been great to be able to, to hear this talked out and concepts we've been hearing uh, not necessarily theoretically, but I just I hear so much about what uh, what you guys do and what this is about, and uh, it's great mm-hmm. to hear from you on this. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks so much, guys. Love talking with you. <laughs>